Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. It's really good to be together. And um, I'm really excited to um, announce that we're going to start a new series for the autumn. Amen. And um, we've been pondering for the last sort of couple of months um, as elders and, and ministries about what the Lord wants to speak to us about in the autumn and felt that um, the Lord would like us to focus upon the culture of the kingdom of God. And we really feel that the book of 1 Corinthians would be a great place to start. So can you just put up the, the slide for the series title, which is Love Builds Up. Love Builds Up. And, um, you know, earlier this year, um, we had, we've had four now from David on This Is Us. This Is Us, which is very much about who we are, our identity, our values, our vision, what's important, our culture in this body. And, um, and also the prophetic words that have been spoken over us. And... Um, one of the things that we felt was really important was to extend that and to go deeper into that. And I think this will be an extension of This Is Us, um, is looking at the kingdom of God, the culture of the kingdom of God. Um, and what's wonderful about Corinthians is it gives us a group of people who are living in a very similar time and a place and culture that we find ourselves in today. So it's a really encouraging book. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but this morning what I'm going to do in a few weeks' time, David's going to start and launch the series, Love Builds Up, and talk about some of the things that we're going to cover in that. But today is a bit of a precursor to that. It's an intro where I'm going to talk about the letter, the first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. So I don't know how familiar you may be with that letter. It's quite a long letter. It's 16 chapters. It's a very exciting letter. There's lots that happens in it. There's really not a dull chapter in it. Um, there was lots going on in Corinth. And today, what I'm going to do is talk about three things. We're going to start by looking at the city of Corinth. And I want us to just consider the background of the city and the place, which is really important. And shapes very much uh, the people who are in Corinth and the church that came out of Corinth. And then we're going to look at the church itself, how the church came to be, and who was in the church and what sort of church they were. And then lastly, we're going to look at the letter itself, 1 Corinthians, this morning. And I'm going to try and do an overview uh, of 1 Corinthians, which is no small task, I can tell you. Um, I'd like to think I've got something that, of uh, Richard Jones that's rubbed off on me from his Bible overview um, ministry. Uh, and that's what I'm going to try and do this morning, give us kind of a potted snapshot of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be spending a few months going through this letter, so if you're not familiar with it already, I'm hoping that you will be uh, over the coming months and that God's going to speak to you and bless you and speak to us uh, and bless us. Does that sound good? Yeah. Fantastic. Lovely. Well, we will start with the city of Corinth. So if you can stick up the map, please. We've got a map for you. Who loves a map? Anyone? There are far few hands up in the room. Who loves a map? That's better. There we go. I don't just love maps. I really love maps. Uh, I find them fascinating. Sometimes when we're sitting watching telly, I will have my phone up and I'm on Google Maps, just going around the world, looking at different bits of the world. And I just find it really fascinating um, because geography determines a lot of our culture and, and it has shaped our history as well. So it's a very important thing. But what I wanted to do was just start by really looking at um, Corinth, so you can see where it is, uh, how it came about. This is a snapshot which gives you, um, these are basically Paul's missionary journeys, which we'll talk about as we go along. But, but Corinth, you can see there with a little red marker on the left-hand side, and it's right at the south point of what is now modern-day Greece, and it was ancient Greece as well at the time, um, right in that little sort of blob of land, uh, which is called Achaia, and you've got Corinth there, which is just in the northeast corner. And I'll talk about a little bit more about the strategic element of that in a minute. But a little bit of the history of it. It was founded around about seven or 800 years before Christ. So it's a very old city. In fact, there was probably, there's probably been a settlement site in Corinth for about maybe 3,000 years uh, in total. So it's a very ancient site. There's always been um, uh, stuff that goes on in Corinth. There's always been settlements there. But it was a city-state in the Greek Empire. So the Greek Empire came before the Roman Empire. 
Uh, and um, in about 146 BC, it was destroyed um, in a battle. It was destroyed as, as just part of the, the sort of tug of war that was going on in, in the regions. And then it was refounded again about 44 BC by Julius Caesar. And um, it was founded as a Roman city-state, a Roman colony. And very quickly, even though the city had been destroyed, it attracted people um, to come back into it again. And commerce and lots of other things would happen in Corinth. And really, a lot of that came about because of its strategic location. So if you were bringing goods from the east and over in the Asia Minor continent, and you'd be going from the east to the west, across to... Italy, so across to Rome, and then maybe across to Spain. You would sail across the Med, or you sail across the Aegean Sea, and rather than going all the way around the landmass there, Achaia, you could just go through Corinth. And I can't zoom in on that, but if you could zoom right in on it, what you would see is a tiny little bit of land. It's just like a little land bridge, if you like, between the blob that sits on the end and the mainland of Greece. So ships, instead of going around the peninsula, which was often quite difficult, quite treacherous. We know that Paul had a, um, a shipwreck when sailing across the Mediterranean. Instead, it would be far less costly and less risky to go via Corinth. And you would come in on the port on, on the Aegean seaside, you would unload all the goods, they would be transported across land, and they'd be offloaded onto ships that were waiting at the port on the opposite side. And then they'd take onward, uh, westward, wherever those goods were headed. So that made Corinth a really important place. It made it a place of commerce, a place of trade, and it made it a place that attracted people right from across the Roman Empire. So you'd got people there that were Romans, people that were Roman citizens. You had Greeks there. You had um, Jewish traders that were there. You'd have all sorts of people, a massive mix and a melting pot of a city. And Corinth had quite the reputation. So back in its Greek days, before it was destroyed, um, Corinth was known as being a, a place of um, licentiousness, a place um, of um, uh, sexual freedom. And one of the temples that was there was the Temple of Aphrodite. And there was a Roman um, geographer called Strabo who um, noted that in that temple of Aphrodite there were a thousand prostitutes that were part of the temple complex and this was all part of the worship of sex that took place in this uh, temple so I don't mean to be um, crude but that's what was going on in the temple so it was a place of great sort of um, sexual freedom as they would have called it and known it and such that the playwright Aristophanes coined a phrase which was Corinthiazo was a verb and it meant to act like a Corinthian and to act like a Corinthian was someone that would basically have sex with whoever they wanted to have so it gives you some idea of the flavor of the place that Corinth was it wasn't unusual in that that was quite prevalent across the Greek Empire and in Greek culture but what we have to understand is it probably stood out um, amongst the empire as being a place that really excelled in that, if I can put it that way. I'm not trying to be sarcastic in that, but they really excelled in that lifestyle and culture. And um, in order to thrive in Corinth, you needed to fit in with that culture. So there would be um, regularly feasts that would take place where there'd be sacrifices to the gods. They'd often take place in conjunction with orgies that would take place. Um, at these feasts and they were often linked to trade guilds so if you had a trade then you would need to be part of a guild because that was a way of being able to get work get work being referred to you to be reputable you had to be part of a guild to be part of a guild you had to attend these feasts and there would be lots of these things going on so that kind of sets the scene for you um, in terms of what Corinth was like as a place to be and it was a place where if you lived there, you needed to go along with the culture if you wanted to get by. If you wanted to have an easy life, you needed to be happy with everything that was going on in Corinth. Not sure that's a place we'd want to be. But I have to say, the more I read about it, the more I thought that's a place that we've moved more towards as a culture, the culture that we live in. 
in as much as the culture is happy for you to do whatever you want as long as you don't seem to be hurting anybody else. The boundaries that were previously in place over the last 50 years have just been slowly edged and removed away so that people can do whatever they want to do and should be able to do whatever they want to be able to do in the culture we're living in. So we're, in some senses, we're not living in a dissimilar culture that the church in Corinth was born. And let's now just turn to the scriptures and look at the church itself. So if you turn with me to Acts 18, this is Paul's second missionary journey. So just while you're turning to that, you can see Paul's missionary journeys mainly started in Antioch, which is over here on the right. You see there, Antioch in Syria. That was where there was a great apostolic base. It was where Paul and Barnabas were sent throughout the book of Acts. And he would often go from there and come back to there. So the first journey, they went across to Cyprus and then up into sort of Asia Minor and then back. And then the second journey, Paul then went further and went across the Asian continent and then went all across to Macedonia and round through to Achaia and then back round again. And the third missionary journey was kind of following the same footsteps, but then revisiting the churches that they planted along the way on that second missionary journey. So when we get to Acts 18, Luke is telling us, what had just happened in Athens, when Paul was in Athens, he travelled there on his own and he was waiting for his companions to catch up with him. And he thought, well, I'll stop at Athens. And in Athens, he talks to the Areopagus, which are this um, body of philosophers. And you'll remember that um, conversation that Paul has with the philosophers where he talks about the unknown God that they were curious about. And he says, I know who this unknown God is. And we're picking up the story now where Paul then moves on from Athens and he travels across slightly southwest to Corinth. So Acts 18, verse 1 says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So this was about AD 49 that this happened. We know this from other historical sources, about AD 49. To leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived, so Paul had been waiting for them, from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Just want to stop there because this is one of my favourite moments uh, in this chapter. So Paul is in the synagogue. That was his practice. He would go to the synagogue every new place he went and he would preach the gospel. And in this case, he's preaching the gospel and some of them are not accepting the message. So Paul does this massive storm out of the synagogue. Uh, but it wasn't much of a storm out because he then went next door. And I'm just sort of picturing the scene of Paul getting really frustrated with these Jews that just weren't listening to the message and storms right out and they're all sort of watching him and he just goes next door and knocks on Justius' door, next door, knocks on the door and all of the Jews are sort of looking out of the door. He's thinking, he's not really gone that far, is he? He's not really made a major storm out. If it were me, I think I'd storm off down the street. But Paul just went next door. Um, because he thought, I know who this guy is, and I'm going to preach the gospel to him instead. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptised. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months. 
teaching the word of God among them. But Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him up in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So Gallio was not interested because as far as he was concerned, this, this Christian sect was just a sub division, if you like, of Judaism. And across the empire, actually, different religions were protected um, under the auspices of the empire. So this is the foundation of the church. And um, if you could just go on to the timeline, can you just put that up, guys? We've got a timeline here. There you go, you can see that, brilliant. As well as putting it in a geographical context, I just want to put it in a historical context for us. So you can see there, um, on the left-hand side, you've got AD 30, which is roughly the date we think that Christ ascended and the day of Pentecost happened. And then you've got this first missionary journey of Paul. So a lot happens during that time, but we're just focusing on Paul and his involvement with the church in Corinth. The missionary journey started around about AD 48, and that's covered in Acts 11 to 13. Then we've got um, Paul, when he's in Corinth, um, on his second missionary journey, that was about AD 50 to 52, which we've just read. And then he goes on to Ephesus. So we think he, he was in Corinth for about 18 months after preaching to the church and establishing the church in Corinth. And then he goes on to Ephesus, and we know that he was in Ephesus for about three years. So quite a long time that Paul was staying in these places, and he was laying a foundation of apostolic doctrine. And that's really important for us to remember, because the apostles were traveling, they were laying a foundation of teaching. And when we read from Acts, and we talk about the disciples being devoted to the apostles' teaching, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about doctrinal foundations that the apostles were laying. And they would spend time in a church, but then they had to travel on. So Paul had to then travel on to new places to preach the gospel. But he wanted to leave a sound foundation wherever he went. And often we find in the letters, when the apostles are writing to the churches they founded or they look after, they are most keen to understand that the people have not forsaken those apostolic foundations. That the apostolic foundation that comes is the foundation of the body. And like any building, you need to maintain its foundations. The foundations determine whether the building will survive. The foundations determine the longevity of a building. And that was the case for these churches, whether they stayed faithful to the gospel that they'd received from Paul. So then we've got Paul in Ephesus, uh, and then sort of missionary journeys two and three kind of slightly merge into one another in, in, the, um, in, Acts narrat in the, the narrative that Luke gives us in Acts. And then we've just got later on um, Paul then in Macedonia. And then lastly, we've got Paul coming back to Corinth. So Paul comes back in AD 56, 57, um, and that's in Acts 20. Uh, and then just the end of the timeline is the last thing we know is that Paul was in prison Luke tells us in Acts 28. We don't know um, what happened to Paul. Some people believe that Paul went on. Um, in the first few centuries, some of the early church fathers wrote about Paul going as far as Spain, and we know in the scriptures Paul said that that was his intention. There's other traditions that suggest that Paul never left Rome, that essentially he was convicted um, and um, that he was martyred, um, probably around um, the same time as, as others. Um, that were preaching the gospel, but we don't know. So, back to Corinth. So, if you can just go back a slide for me. No, sorry. That's, uh, that's it. Yep, stay there. That's fine. Great. So, I just want to talk a little bit about the church itself. So, we've just read about how it was founded on Paul's second missionary journey. Um, what's important in the church is demographics. So, in, in the letter itself, Paul talks 
um, about those that were, that were there. There was Aquila, Priscilla, and Crispus who were Jews. There were Romans there that are mentioned in, Acts, uh, in uh, chapter 16. And there are also those of Greek extraction as well. So the church that Paul founded, it was a real mix, a demographic mix and an ethnic mix, a cultural mix. And it very much reflected the society in which the church was. And wherever the, a church is founded, it needs to reflect the place in which it is founded. It needs to reflect the people around it. Simply because when people get saved, there need to be people from, from that area where a church gets founded. But what we then have to remember is that as that happens, as you then get a melting pot as a church is formed and it grows, is that you've got then a, a melting pot of cultures and backgrounds. And um, that's very much what Corinth was. People came in and they'd got different influences, they'd got different practices, but they were all coming into one place and they were coming into a new kingdom and that was the kingdom of God. And that forms some of the tension for the Corinthians because the culture that they'd inherited, the culture that they'd grown up with, a lot of them then brought into their life in the church. And it was quite difficult for them to let go of some of the former ways that they were living and I just want to say this that we're living in a time and an age where people God has been adding to us are coming from different cultures and backgrounds and that will continue because God has said it will continue that's his plan for us that God would add wild flowers into the garden and that was all part of his plan to change the variety of his expression within this house it's a good thing but it also means that as we come into together, we bring different cultures, we bring different influences. And as we'll see as we go through the book, one of the things that the Corinthians had to learn then was instead of pushing their way of doing things forward, was actually to listen and to learn from others. To step back sometimes and to prefer others instead of saying, I think we should do things this way. Or this is the way we do things where I come from. And I think that's a really important lesson for us as the church that actually as we prefer one another, we listen to one another, we receive from one another, because all those things that we bring in are good things, but there are some things that maybe we'll have to go. Maybe there are some things that are not in line with the, the culture of the kingdom of God, and the Holy Spirit will shape us and mold us and make us into God's people that we're supposed to be. But we need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in that. And that's a really important thing as we continue to grow and the variety of expression of God continues to change um, in this house. One thing just to say about the church and about that baggage that was brought in that's kind of just something to bear in mind and that is the, the, the culture, the Greek culture that was prevalent in Corinth. One of the elements of it was something called platonic dualism. Platonic dualism. So Plato, you may have heard of him, he was a Greek philosopher, and Plato had a version of what, what was called dualism, and Plato's version of dualism was to suppose that life was split into the things that you can see and the things that you can't see, the physical and what we would call the spiritual. And he hypothesized that the spiritual was pure and clean and perfect, and everything that was physical was a sort of a poor copy, a poor representation of that which was spiritual and pure and perfect. Now you might sort of say, okay, well, you know, that doesn't sound quite so bad, does it? You know, because we know in the physical things we have, there are imperfections, aren't there? You know, um, nothing's perfect that we see around us and, and maybe something of what is spiritual seems more perfect or whatever it may be. The trouble with this philosophy was is that they began to idolize that which is spiritual and to denigrate that which was physical. In a way that meant that it didn't really matter what happens with the physical, what only matters is what, what happens in the spiritual. And in Greek culture, what that sort of evolved into was this thought process that actually I can do whatever I want with my body and it doesn't affect my spirit, my soul. In other words, my soul can remain pure well, I can do whatever I want with my body. And this is completely contrary to what the Bible teaches us. And it was completely contrary to what Paul had grown up with. For Jews, the body is really important as the spirit is important. 
And, we, and when we get to right to the end of the letter, Paul actually talks about our bodies being resurrected and that which is perishable, no, it ain't perfect, but it will be clothed with the imperishable. In other words, God will take our bodies and by that time, you know, your body might be breaking down a little bit, might be wearing out a little bit. In the second letter, Paul talks about these as jars of clay. You know, they do wear and tear, don't they? But the good news is that one day, that which is physical will be clothed in that which is spiritual. But for God, both those things are, poss- both those things are important, which means what we do with our bodies is really important in terms of how we conduct ourselves, but also whether we take care of our bodies. That's also really important. So that was a really important message that was kind of cutting right across what the Corinthians were used to hearing and what they'd grown up with. And that, in some respects, sort of caused some of the the problems, if you like, because they were still thinking, well, it doesn't matter what I do on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, when I go into the gathering, I can do whatever I want outside of that and I can still be pure. And of course, that's not the case. So what I want to do is just now look at the letter itself. And Paul wrote this letter in around about AD 55. So according to the timeline, Paul was now in Ephesus. This is about three years after that first visit. And he writes to them. And the first thing I should just say to you is that 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. That may not be news to some of you in the room. Um, It's not actually, possibly, probably the first letter he wrote to them because there's just a few places where Paul mentions another letter that he'd written to them. So 1 Corinthians could be 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians could be 3 Corinthians but it might just be 4 Corinthians. We're not really sure. But there's an important thing there for us because when you think about that sometimes we sort of think well, okay. So we've got 1 and 2 Corinthians but maybe 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians maybe 3 Corinthians. So why haven't we got 1 Corinthians? And that really is down to the decision of the Holy Spirit about what we should have in the Word of God. And this isn't the only place when we come to God's Word and we say, well, I don't understand why this isn't in there. There's lots of gaps in here where you and I have probably said, do you know it would be really handy if you'd put something in about this? You ever been in that position? You ever thought that? There's a gap here where I would like God to have been more explicit about this. Maybe a chapter on this would be good, Lord. And there are other times when we read things and we say, do you know what, I really wish you hadn't put that chapter in there, or I wish you hadn't put that command in there, or I really wish you hadn't told us about that thing that happened, because I'm not sure about some of the things that took place, and I'm not really sure about sometimes what God did in those situations. When we read some of the stories of the Old Testament, you ever felt like that, slightly conflicted? But the word of God that we have is the word of God that he intended us to have. No more and no less. And that's a really important principle for us that we need to settle in our spirits. That where we think, actually, I'm missing something here. No, you're not. You have what God intends you to have. And we have the word that we need. So in other words, everything that God has included in his word is what we need for life and godliness. We don't need the other stuff. Sometimes where we've got questions, God's saying, you don't need the answer to that question. What you need is what I've given you. And we have to be able to say, Lord, I trust You know what you're doing. And the word of God is perfect and flawless, as the prophet Isaiah said. So let's take a little sort of speed read, if you like, through Corinthians. Um, Paul writes the letter. We find out pretty early on, Paul writes the letter because um, he'd received certain reports. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians... So he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. So we know that there was a delegation from a lady called Chloe, who was a prominent member of the church, that was sent to Paul because there were problems and they were seeking Paul's intervention, Paul's um, help. And we also know that there were written correspondence, which potentially was another letter that had already gone to Paul. But that, that was why the, the, the letter was written. And Paul, therefore, starts in the first four chapters. When you look through, look through one, two, three, and four, 
And what we find in here is Paul essentially jumping straight in. But before he does that, he does something really important. I think we just need to take note of this. In verse 4, he says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Paul starts, even though there are problems he needs to deal with, he starts with praise. He starts by praising them for what they were doing right. And there's something really important here, because if you turn to the letter to the Galatians, the the churches in Galatia had the opposite problem. They weren't doing whatever they wanted. They were embracing legalism. Because there were people amongst them saying, you've got to become like Jews first. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the law. And only then can you become Christians. And they were being restricted by legalism. And Paul doesn't give them such praise at all. But here the Corinthians where, you know, by all intents and purposes, it seems like a bit of a free-for-all. But Paul still comes in with praise and said, look, there's great gifting among you. There's great enthusiasm among you. But there's some issues that we need to deal with. And that's the way God treats us. He would rather us make mistakes and he comes in and helps us with those things than we do nothing at all. And that's why when he writes to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, in that letter to the church in Ephesus, he said, I want to spit you out of my mouth because you're you're lukewarm. You're neither one thing or the other. I'd rather you be hot or cold, he says. Well, the Corinthians were red hot. And Paul writes to them and he encourages them. I think that's really important just as as we get going. So ostensibly, we can split this letter into different sections. The first section is chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, where Paul is dealing with divisions. And then the next few chapters, which are chapters 5 and 7, you'll see chapters 5, 6, and 7, where Paul starts to get into matters of sexuality and relationships. And he's still dealing with kind of the stuff he's heard, but he's, he's just dealing with that issue at that time. And then we get into chapters 8, 9, and 10. And in 8, 9, and 10, he's then starting to deal with some issues that have come up around these feasts that I mentioned, and also around the issue of whether they could eat meat that had been been part of these sacrifices. So one of the problems that they had was in these kind of sacrifice orgy type things, they would um, have meat that was sacrificed to gods, And not all of the meat would be consumed. And some of that meat would then be sold in the marketplace. And so for some Christians, they were having a dilemma as whether they should be eating this stuff as it had been sort of offered as a sacrifice to a god. So it was a relevant issue. And Paul gets into that and starts to talk about that. Then we get chapters 11, 12, 13 and 14. And they deal largely with what was happening when the Corinthians came together. So either in a setting like this where we all come together, or maybe just in a, ha- in a home, meeting home to home. But when the Corinthians came together, what was happening in their gatherings? And, and deals with a range of problems that were happening there. And then, as I said a bit earlier, the last thing he then does is he deals with this sort of um, this teaching that had arisen about them maybe not being a future resurrection, which was something that the Sadducees taught. Pharisees believed in a future resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't believe in any future resurrection. So this has sort of started to creep in somehow at Corinth. So then Paul takes the chapter to say, look, it's really important that you understand there will be a future resurrection and what it means for all of us. So they're the different sections, but when you actually then go into each section, what we actually see is that even though each section is ostensibly about one thing, Paul really is talking about something else. In other words, he's digging below what's happening on the surface and he's saying, look, this is what's what's really going on. In other words, he's looking into their hearts. And that's often the case that where there are problems in the body of Christ, where there are problems between people or there are problems amongst people, that it's indicative of something else that's going on. And it's really the something else that God cares about more than the, the surface issue. The issues are coming from a root issue, which is something else. And that's what Paul drills into in his fantastic um, wisdom. So in in the first couple of chapters, Paul starts talking about this thing called wisdom that's a bit of a problem. Now, for the Greek culture that was prevalent in Corinth, wisdom was venerated above all other things. Wisdom. They had a great history in ancient Greece of philosophers 
And therefore, around the Roman Empire, you had remnants of this where people would be traveling from place to place, a bit like Paul, but instead of preaching the gospel, they would be preaching, um, uh, they'd be treat, uh, preaching effectively rhetoric. They'd be talking about philosophy and talking about things in philosophical terms. And often they were just using fancy language to impress people. But these people could make a living on that. They could travel from city to city and just stand up and start talking about philosophy and things like that. And people would be impressed by it. It was an impressive thing in that society. And what Paul says to them in this first chapter is, look, you're impressed by this stuff, but I've not come to you with this kind of rhetoric. I've not come to you with this stylistic way of speaking. I've come to you with the wisdom of the cross. And what he does is he contrasts the wisdom of the cross with the wisdom of the world. And he says, the, the cross is folly to the world. Who on earth would come and die for people? I mean, who would make that up? No one else made it up. There's no other religion out there that, that, that states that, that God came, became a man, and died for the sins of his people. But that's what we believe. And Paul says, there's a reason why God did it this way. So he says in... Chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he says in verse 20, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, you can't philosophize your way to God. It doesn't work. You can't think your way to him. Because sin is your problem. You've got to deal with sin. And no matter all the intellectual philosophizing, you'll never deal with sin. He says, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs. So the, uh, Jesus was constantly demanded for signs and wonders by the Jews. But Greeks seek wisdom. That's what they venerated. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's not saying God is wise or, or foolish or weak. He's just saying God is above men. And then he says in verse 29, Paul tells us the reason why God chose to do things this way so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, that the work of salvation would be 100% God's, so that we cannot claim any credit for what God has done. It's not 99% him and 1% us. That's a gospel of works. It is 100% God. It's a gospel of grace. And Paul was saying, you need to understand this, Corinthians. Don't be impressed by worldly wisdom. This is all God. And God alone. And then as, as he works through um, the next couple of chapters, then Paul starts to talk about some of the things that were happening in the church. And essentially, because um, of their background, they were doing things in the flesh, if you like. In other words, they were very much promoting themselves. A lot of these divisions were coming because people were seeking to be important in the church. They were seeking to be, um, you know, part of the in crowd. And therefore, you had then factions that broke out where some were saying, well, I claim the authority of Paul. And some said, I claim the authority of Apollos. And Paul says to them, look, all of that is flesh. Don't promote yourselves. You're a spiritual people. And then in chapter 3, when he addresses that directly, he says, in verse 5, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? We're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So Paul is saying, look, stop all the self-promotion. What you need to understand is the gospel is 100% God's and everyone in this body, everyone that God has called into this church, God has assigned a place and a purpose. And that's how God's kingdom works. It doesn't work by ambition. It doesn't work by self-promotion. It doesn't work by how intellectual you are. It doesn't work by how much money you have. It works by God choosing you and then saying, I'm going to place you here to do this job. And that's it. And that is completely contrary to the culture that we see out in the world. Whether it's wealth or power or even a meritocracy, which is the latest version, 
it's all about us earning our place. Whereas in the kingdom of God and in, in his church, it does not work that way. It's not a democracy either. It's a theocracy. God decides, he apportions who does what. And that's a really important lesson. And then in the next few chapters, so that's through to chapter 4, and then in chapters 5 through to 7, Paul then starts to get into some of the sexual issues that were going on and matters of relationship. So you might be familiar with the situation that happens in chapter 5, which is where Paul has been told about this man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law, and he makes this amazing statement where he says, in verse 1 of chapter 5, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. In other words, even in Corinth, they're raising eyebrows about how you're living because there were some boundaries that they had. But what you're doing is you've come into your freedom in Christ and said, well, we can do whatever we want. And that's what had happened. And in actual fact, they were starting to boast in that to say, well, we're free now in Christ, so we can do whatever we want. And Paul was saying, no, you can't do whatever you want. You've come into God's house. And in God's house, there is God's spiritual authority. And not only that, but his house, and he says this in, in, in these couple of chapters, his house is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So it needs to be pure and offered solely to God as a living sacrifice. And your bodies together form, as living stones, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there needs to be holiness in God's house. It's not a free-for-all. It's not do what you want. You know, when we were at One Voice recently, Matthew, when Matthew was speaking, he defined, and I'm going to try and remember this properly, he defined freedom, God's definition of freedom, is to be that which we were made to be. The world's definition of freedom is to do whatever I want. And they stand in clear contrast to one another. And as we stand here today, we stand in clear contrast to the world that we are free to be who God has created us to be. And I don't mean necessarily generic terms. I mean individually. I mean to be who we are, each one of us as an individual, and to do the things that he's called us to do. And as God's people, we need to be those that are holy and devoted to him. And in chapter 7, Paul then starts talking about marriage and relationships. And there's some, some stuff in there that's a little bit confusing, but essentially... Paul is talking to quite a difficult situation for the church and his message, bottom line, is I don't want you to get distracted at this time. Some of these issues are distracting you from what you've been called to do. Then in chapters 8 through 10, sorry, just dealing with 5 through 7 still. In these chapters, 5 through 7, although Paul is talking about spiritual authorities, talking about how they live their lives, their relationships, and the sexual matter that had arisen in the church, what he's saying is, is that the church is the temple of God, but you're treating it like a marketplace. A marketplace for people to get whatever they want and do whatever they want. He said, but you need to understand that we are the temple of God. And then in 8 through 10, he then talks about the marketplace, what was going on because of these feasts and everything else. And the problem here is that, as I said a bit earlier, that because they come into a freedom, they were getting... Um, arrogant with that freedom saying well we've been freed from uh, any constraints we can do what we want so we find at the beginning of chapter 8 Paul says this now concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up but love builds up knowledge puffs up but love builds up if anyone imagines he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know but if anyone loves God he is known by God and Paul's giving them a really important principle here, is that knowledge can puff up, can make us arrogant, make us full of ourselves, but love always seeks to build up. And this is the lesson that he wants the Corinthians to learn. It's about service. Love causes us to serve in the body, whereas sin causes us to seek self. And it's about service and not about self. And in these chapters, he deals with these issues that were coming out where essentially they were not... Um, preferring one another they were pushing themselves forward and they were causing problems amongst one another because they were just choosing to live as they wanted to live and then we get to chapters 11 through 14 I hope, you I hope you're keeping up with this by the way I know it's a bit breakneck pace 11 through 14 now 
Paul starts to talk about their gatherings and what happens when we come together. And really the big message here is the Corinthians understanding that they are a body and not individuals. They had an individual mindset where everything was orientated around me and what I want to do and what works for me. Does that sound familiar? That's the culture in which we live. That culture can come into the kingdom of God, but that's not how things work in the kingdom of God. Love builds up. It's about the body and not about individuals. And he says in uh, chapter 11 and verse 17, this is Paul talking about the Lord's Supper. You'll probably be familiar that some people were turning up drunk to sharing the Lord's Supper. And Paul has to deal with this. And he says, but in the following instructions, I do not contempt, condemn, commend you. I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. In other words, when you come together as the church of God, you're not better for it, you're worse for it. That's how bad some of the gatherings had become. Whereas actually when we come together, what the Holy Spirit wants to do for each of us is to have our hearts and minds set on him. But apart from that, to have our hearts and minds set on building up everyone around us. And that really should be the way we approach every gathering. Number one, we come wanting to serve the Lord our God with all our heart. And number two, to love our brother as ourselves. In other words, it's the, it's the law. Jesus said that, that really is the sum of the law. If we come with that as a focus, a lot of the issues that can arise internally for us and the attitudes that arise, they're just pushed away because we come wanting to glorify him and we come wanting to bless and to build others up. And that's what Paul is really trying to teach them. And then that's why we've got, in chapter 12, Paul talks about the spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, Paul talks about love. And then in chapter 14, he kind of goes back to talking about those spiritual gifts. And what he's saying is, here, they're very carefully positioned because he's talking about gift, love, and gift. And he's saying, look, everything you do has got to have love at the centre of it. Everything you do as a body of people, everything you undertake, every, every job that you do, everything you do together, it needs to be motivated from love. If love is your springboard... It'll also be your compass. It'll keep you on track. It'll stop you getting distracted with things. It'll protect you from bad attitudes. It'll keep you in a place where you will build each other up. It'll help motivate you to do more in the body. In the area of gifts, he says, look, when you come together, chapter 14, 26, each one of you has, and then he lists the ways that we can contribute when we come together in a gathering, whether it's in a home or in a bigger place like this. Each one of you has something. And if we come to the gathering wanting to build up the body, the Holy Spirit always will give you something to build others up. That's my, that's my cast iron guarantee. If you ask the Holy Spirit, would you give me something in this gathering, whether it's in a home or a bigger setting, to build someone else up, the Holy Spirit says, I've got something for you right now. And we need to get into the habit of that always being our heart when we come together. And, and, you know, when the writer to the Hebrews is encouraging them, he says, when we come together, he says, let us. And he says five times, let us do this, let us do that. And one of the things he says is, let us spur one another on to love and good works. Evermore as we see the day of Christ approaching. In other words, that needs to be top of your agenda, to spur one another on. Love builds up. And then in chapter 15, as I mentioned a bit earlier, Paul talks about um, the resurrection. And he makes a very simple point, which is if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we are wasting our time. That might sound like an obvious point, but there are lots of people who want to embrace a gospel where Christ didn't need to raise, be raised from the dead. Doesn't need to have actually happened. But it did happen. And if it didn't happen, we're all wasting our time. Everything pivots on that for us. And it's also the source of our future hope. If, if God raised Christ from the dead and gave him a new body, then he will come for us one day and we will be raised, whether we're here or whether we're already um, in the ground, our bodies will be raised and clothed with immortality. And that's the, the future hope that Paul wants um, the Corinthian saints to have. 
Then in chapter 16, there's just some closing remarks and, 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 and Paul just honouring those who were working and serving with him. So there you go. That was, <laughs> that was a, a speedy run through the book of Corinthians. Thank you for sticking with me. I want to just give you a little bit of homework, if I could. So we're going to be starting this in about three weeks' time. And I'd like you to read the book of Corinthians by then, so by the beginning of October, if you could read the book of Corinthians. And over the coming months, I want to suggest to you to try something. So if you can, put your hands up if you're an NLT reader. We've got loads of NLTs. Okay. Yeah. NIV or ESV? Holman's? Hands up. Yeah. Okay. So there are different versions, and some of them are uh, what we call a tighter translation than others. Others are what we call more dynamic, so that the language is a bit more fluid, and it tries to be a bit more up-to-date in terms of the flow and how we would say things, turns of phrase, that kind of thing. What I'd encourage you to do is to read the book of 1 Corinthians three times. We'd like you to read it in more of a literal translation, so that would be something like the ESV or the Holman or the CSB or the NASB. And then a dynamic translation, which will be primarily the NLT, but it could also be the NIV. And then read it in a paraphrase. Obvious example would be the message. Um, or I would recommend, if you've not tried it before, J.B. Phillips. J.B. Phillips is a paraphrase written a long time ago, but still has a beautiful flow to it. So would you do that for me? Would you read the book of 1 Corinthians three times? in a literal, a dynamic, and a paraphrase. And each time, you're going to get something new from it. God's going to speak to you in different ways. And God's going to bless you. Amen? Yeah. You up for that? Yeah. I'm taking your silence as a buy-in and cast-iron agreement, like a contractual agreement. So I shall be asking everyone as and when I see them. Praise God. Thanks for sticking with me. Rich, back to you. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.